Hi, everybody. I have some exciting news. I am launching a Substack. I know. I keep telling you how I'm not a writer, and I'm still not a writer, but I am going to be writing about reading over on Substack. The Substack is called Unstacked, and you can find it at tracythomas.substack.com. There will be free options every Friday. There'll be a bunch of weekly roundups, announcements, all the shit I'm into. And then if you want to upgrade yourself to the paid subscription, I'm going to have author interviews, bonus episodes, anticipated reads, book pairings, community chats, all sorts of stuff. So, If that sounds like something you'd be into, go to tracythomas.substack.com and join Unstacked. And of course, I've got a special offer for you. If you go to tracythomas.substack.com slash the stacks 10, you get 10% off your first year membership of Unstacked. You have from now until April 4th to redeem. Again, that's tracythomas.substack.com slash the stacks 10 for 10% off Unstacked. Okay, that's enough. Let's listen to this episode. Welcome to The Stacks, a podcast about books and the people who read them. I'm your host, Tracy Thomas, and it is the last Wednesday of the month, which means it's The Stacks Book Club Day. We're joined again by Clint Smith, who is the author of the instant New York Times bestselling poetry collection, Above Ground. And in order to celebrate National Poetry Month, our book club pick is Catalog of Unabashed Gratitude, an award-winning collection of poems by Ross Gay. Released in 2015, it is a beautiful meditation on the ephemeral nature of love and life, and it's rooted in the imagery of nature itself. Today, Clinton and I talk about the context that this collection was written in, how we connect with poetry, and so much more. If you're intimidated by poetry, I promise this episode is for you. And there are no spoilers on today's episode. Make sure to listen to the end of today's episode to find out what our May book club selection will be. Quick reminder, everything we talk about on each episode of The Stacks can be found in the link in the show notes. And if you love The Stacks and you want more bookish goodness, check out The Stacks Pack on Patreon, patreon.com slash The Stacks. For just $5 a month, you can join our incredible community on Discord, get our bonus episodes, join our monthly virtual book club chats, and so much more. And you get to know that you're a part of making this Black woman-run independent book podcast a reality every single week. I could not make the show with out the stacks pack. So if you like the show and you want to hear more of it every single week, go to patreon.com slash the stacks and join. Special shout out to our newest members of the stacks pack, Sarah Thacker and Tracy. Not me, another Tracy. <laughs> thank you all so much. And thank you to the entire stacks pack. And now it's time for my conversation with Clint Smith about Ross Gay's poetry collection, Catalog of Unabashed Gratitude. All right, everybody, it is the Stacks Book Club Day, and we are joined again by Clint Smith, author of Above Ground, a brand new poetry collection, and also How the Word is Passed, um, which is his narrative nonfiction, which I'm sure many of you have heard of because he's already on the show about that. And today we are talking about Catalog of Unabashed Gratitude by Ross Gay. Clint, welcome back. It's good to be back. Uh, thrilled to have you to talk about poetry because poetry, I always feel intimidated and you're a poet, so you'll know the vibes. Um, but for people who don't know anything about this book, um, Catalog of Unabashed Gratitude is a collection of poems that sort of spans 
gratitude and joy, mm. but also there's some grief in here in some major mm-hmm. ways. And it's a collection of poems from Ross Gay. And some of you will know Ross Gay from his more recent books, The Book of Delights and Inciting Joy, which are his two latest books, which aren't poetry collections. They're like essay collections. Um, okay, we always start here. Generally, what did you think of the book? I love this book. And this book is one that I think it came out in 2015. And I remember, you know, it was critically acclaimed National Book Award finalist. I think it was also a finalist for the National, might have won, did it win the National Book Critics Circle Award? It won the National Book Critics Circle Award for Poetry and the Kingsley Tufts Poetry Award. And then was a finalist for the National Book Award. As it says on my cover. (laughs) There you go. Oh, you got all the, I have an old version. I got the cheat sheet. There you go. So a couple of things. I remember reading this book and part of why it was so important was because it was a moment in which there was this, you know, Ross is like 6'5". Like he's a 6'5 mm. black man with a ponytail and like who loves gardening and talking about his favorite type of plum and his fa- <laughs> and just like but it, but but you know in the in our previous episode part of what we talked about was the holding of interpersonal moments of joy amid a larger backdrop of grief and mourning. And so this book came out in the early days of the Black Lives Matter movement, in which, again, we were sort of incessantly inundated with these images of of violence against Black people so often at the hands of state-sanctioned forces. And so many of us, we we were writing into that space we were excavating that space. We were, and I think necessarily so, right? It was it was so important for us to have books that were talking about the history of policing. So important for us to talk, have books that were outlining how the impact this had on Black people's bodies to see this mm. all the time. So important for us to have books that were wrestling with the, the larger uh, lineage of violence that what we were seeing was a part of. And this book kind of came into the world. And I don't think any of us knew how much we needed it Hmm. because it was a book by a black man who was leaning into and writing about the small granular quotidian joys of Hmm. life. And, you know, there are poems in here that are like ode to buttoning my shirt, ode to the flute, (laughs) Ode to sleeping in my clothes. And it was just, and I'm, I'm going to start saying we, because I I'm, I'm should, I should speak for myself, but even though I think it is reflective of how many people thought of it, um, I it was so important for me to read that book in that moment because it was a reminder for me before we moved into this phase of like mm-hmm. black joy and black, you know, and, and which is, I think, a rejection or a, a, an attempt at, a, an attempted counterweight to all of the violence, all of the oppression. Like, we are more than our history of violence. We are more mm. than our history of oppression, which is absolutely true. And I think now there has been a sort of swing to to write more about joy, write more about the expansiveness of the Black experience, which is uh, very important. We need books about all of those things. But this entered in a moment where it felt so important to have a book, not even that was like, that was saying like, I'm a tall, large black man writing about joy, but that just right. was right. Just like it was. was just, just was, it was just him saying 
look at the world around us, like how remarkable it is. Like, look, look at the fig tree. Like, look at, you know, I mean, he goes on for pages about this fig right. tree, right? And right. like, and, and manure on his hands and being in his garden and uh, conversations with his elders. And, and to your point, it's not to say that there aren't moments, and we can talk about those of, of larger sociopolitical analysis and grief and mourning, but it was, it was just so refreshing because it was a reminder that we are more and we can write about more than the violence that was inflicted on us, which feels, you know, it's, this is seven years later. So it, saying that, even to, as I say it out loud, feels more like self-evident because mm-hmm. then, then maybe it felt at the time because mm-hmm. now we're like, oh, of course, like you have to, you people write about all sorts of types of blackness is hetero, you know, there's a lot of heterogeneity to the black right. experience where you have about this and that and this and that. But it, in a moment where we all felt so oriented at, at mm-hmm. as black writers to say, to use our, our writing to name and to shame and to carry the weight of this history. There was this book that was like, yes, and don't forget what a miracle it is to like wake up each day and be alive. And in, 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 in its own way, raise the stakes of what was happening around it because so many of the people who were killed at the hands of police, like it is not only that they are killed. It's, it's not only the spectacle of what has been taken away through their death, but it's also that they will never button their shirt again, right? right. They will never sleep, fall asleep in their clothes again. They will never look at the fig tree again. So it is in its own way. It was this reminder of why life is so precious and and helped give a sense of like this is what was taken away from um so many of these people who we we see who were being killed so okay what is annoying to me about you is that you've already changed my entire opinion about this book <laughs> in those first few minutes i struggled a little bit with this book i got to okay. be honest i and i've talked about this a lot about my relationship to poetry and i tweeted about it a little bit which is that i don't feel super secure in my reading of poetry mm. And in this specific way, which is when a poet is speaking to exactly a thing that I can understand what they're talking about and I can relate to it, I can enjoy a poem. Mm -hmm. But I really struggle to read a poem by an old white guy from 1852 or, you know, a poem about being a firefighter or whatever, because I just don't get it. So I have Mm -hmm. no understanding of like you know, we use this analogy of the tree last time and like stopping and looking at the tree. It is as if someone is writing a poem about a kind of tree I've literally never seen. And I don't Mm. have the imagination and the understanding of poetry to be able to like critique or think about poems in the way that I could read a novel or a piece of nonfiction about some, about a firefighter and be like, Oh, I get it. Like the, the abstractification of life through a poem is very, very, very challenging for me. And so for this book, there were moments like Mm -hmm. lines or like sections of poems where I would be like, holy shit, holy shit, I'm here, I'm here, I'm here. And then I would like lose it or Mm -hmm. I would feel like I I don't know where he went. And 
so there were so when I went back to like prepare for this conversation, there were so many notes that I had taken where I was like, oh, yeah, I did love that moment. But mm. I couldn't tell you what poem it was from or like mm-hmm. I couldn't tell you what the poem was about. I could just remember like the way he described like eating the plum. I was like, oh, this is an iconic moment for me. It was it was a really hard collection for me because I never usually I feel like there's one or two full poems where I'm like, oh my God, I'm fully here. Mm. And I ne- I didn't have any poem that I could remember from this, but I did again have these moments. And and I was, there were things I was impressed by. Like I was really impressed by his sort of meandering style where he'd like start a poem in one place. And all of a sudden by the end, I was like nine pages later, I was like, how did we get here? Like, where are we? And I think that's part of what was hard for me is like, oftentimes I'm used to poems where it's like, this is a poem about my dog. And it's like, Fido is my dog. And then we end and it's like, that's why I love Fido. And I'm like, great, I'm here. But with this would be like, here's a poem about Fido. And then it would end and be like, and I had a bagel and cream cheese. And I'm like, Mm. where the fuck is Fido? Like I, Mm -hmm. and so I think like, and that's not to say anything bad about the poems or the collection, but it is part of my like ongoing struggle with poetry. And I think like the context that you gave is really helpful for me to think about this collection because I didn't, I, it didn't really occur to me like, oh yes, 2015, of course, like this is coming out into a world of like all of these murders and this like spectacle of black death. Um, so Yeah. So do, do you remember by chance there being a poem? Um, it was it went kind of viral on the Internet. It's called A Small Needful Fact by Ross Gay. No. Um, listeners might remember. It was a very short poem uh, that came out uh, after Eric Garner's non-indictment. Um, and, and it's interesting because this is a poem that's not in the book. But here I have it. I'm going to just read it really quickly. Yes. Is that OK? Um, I'll read it out loud. A small needful fact is that Eric Garner worked for some time for the Parks and Rec Horticulture Department, which means perhaps that with his very large hands, perhaps in all likelihood, he put gently into the earth some plants, which most likely some of them in all likelihood continue to grow, continue to do what such plants do, like house and feed small and necessary creatures, like being pleasant to touch and smell, like converting sunlight into food, like making it easier for us to breathe that i understand there you go and uh, i guess you know it's interesting trying to make the connection between the moment and ross's work i think that poem part of why it went as viral as it did was because it was a reminder of eric garner's humanity right and a reminder Mm -hmm. again not that he that he was not just this abstraction of an Mm -hmm. idea that he was not not even that he was just this man that we saw on the television or on our news feeds, but it's a sort of, it's, it's like the act of imagining that mm-hmm. maybe Eric Garner is someone who liked to work, who worked in gardens and who put his hands right. into the earth and who, you know, again, these sort of small things that are, maybe it was his job, maybe it was something he liked, but I think what Ross's work does is like leans into the facets of our humanity that mm-hmm. we might otherwise overlook. In so many ways, this book and his work more broadly was an inspiration for the sort of sensibilities of my own book, Above Ground. Which I could feel. Yeah. And, and I which think, I could feel. And I think that it, it, because 
it is part of what I wanted to do was like lean into the things that might be like everyday occurrences um, Mm -hmm. or no regular occurrences that if I don't for myself, like stop and take note of stop. And in this case, like stop, write a poem about, because in so many ways, that's how I take notice of things is writing a poem about them. Then I'm, then I risk losing an appreciation for this thing that is otherwise within itself, a sort of small miracle. I do hear you on the, how the sort of stream of consciousness of the poem is both one of the things that can draw you into it, but also that can take you out of it because it yeah. it is moving in so many different directions. And it's interesting, you know, it reminds me of a writer we both love so much is Hanif Adurakib's work mm. in the way that I remember reading Little Devil in America. Yeah. And this, I mean, this is, but if you read all of his essays and many of his poems, it's like this, like it begins, you think you're reading a better example yeah. is like uh, in his first book of essays, like you think you're reading a book about, or an essay about Carly Rae Jepsen. Yeah. And then you're like, Wait, <laughs> yes, this- that's the one that popped into my <laughs> yeah, head too. Like, oh man, this book, this, you're like, this is not really about Carly Rae Jepsen or not right. just about Carly, right? Cause it just, it, right. it moved like the thing about Hanif's mind and Ross's mind is the way that it, the connections that they establish mm-hmm. to these things that ostensibly have nothing to do with what mm-hmm. the poem or the essay is about. And yet, you know, you read a Hanif essay and you're like Carly Rae Jepsen, space travel, the first right. moonwalk, the right. soul train line, the first time my mother made me a pancake, the, right. you know, and then right. suddenly right. you're like, how are we, how do we get to the, like, how did we get to Pluto from the, right. and yet. Well, yeah. yeah. Part of the reason that I feel like Hanif works for me, which is sort of what I was getting at before about my weakness in poetry, is that I know about Hanif. Mm. So I knew some biographical information about Hanif's life. We are of the same age. Mm -hmm. We have a lot of the same cultural references. And I don't have that background on Ross Mm. Gay. And so I couldn't always figure out what he was talking about. Mm. Like, quite literally, I was like, I don't know what this is in reference Mm -hmm. to. And so, like... I struggled at the, I talked about this at length because we did A Little Devil in America on the podcast. But when I first read the book, the first essay, I was like, I have no fucking clue what I'm reading. <laughs> right. Like, I literally was like, the first essay is like the Soul Train essay or whatever. And I was like, or the dance marathons or something. And I was like, I have no clue what this is. Yeah. I do not get it. And then when I finished the first essay and went to the second essay, then I was like, oh. Mm. And then when I finished the book, I went back to the first essay. Almost exact same thing I did with South to America by Imani Perry, Mm. because she's another writer who does this thing where she's pulling. Mm -hmm. And I think it, again, is their it's their strength. Mm -hmm. But when it's a nonfiction book for me, it's easier because I'm like, okay, this is what we're talking about. Mm. Like this chapter is called Soul Train. At least I have some grounding. And so I think. With poetry, you know, because I, I people get mad at me when I'm self-deprecating, but I've talked about how I'm like, I'm not good at poetry. And I was tweeting about this the other day and a woman was like, I actually think you're really good at understanding poetry and whatever. And my response to her was like, I think that to be like a good critic of something, you have to be able to read something that you don't understand or doesn't speak directly to you and be able to have an opinion about that as well. Mm. And so I'm not there yet for poetry. As I read this book, it reminded me that I'm like, I'm not there. Like, I don't. And Roski isn't super far from me in age or, you know, he's a black American. Like, it's not like we're I'm talking mm-hmm. about Walt Whitman or something. Right. right. Like, it's just that it's it just doesn't. 
I, I, I lack the imagination for mm. it, I think, in some ways. I mean, I, I don't I don't know. I, I think that what we should do is like like poetry, there's so many different ways to experience a poem. And it mm-hmm. does and for some poems, and and I say this as you know, someone who's who is a poet who's poetry for a while, there are some poems that I read and I'm like, I have no idea what no that idea. poem was about. Right. Like I haven't <laughs> I don't I and I'll read it again and be like, still got no clue. Read it again. I'm like, and and these are sometimes poems from people I love, people I respect, yeah. people who mean a lot mm-hmm. to me. And I and I don't quote unquote understand what the poem is about. Mm-hmm. But Part of what I think is important to remember is that, like, to successfully engage with a poem does not simply mean or does not only mean that you should understand what Mm -hmm. the poem is about. Right. Like, Mm -hmm. and I think about this in the context of music. It is wild how many songs I, I like listen to as a kid. And then, I mean, we might have even talked about this. And and then you go back and you're like. Like I was just talking about this with a friend. I, I so many '90s R&B songs, and I that Too I listen to. For example. Oh my god! And you're like, this poem, <laughs> this song is about an erection, right? Like, yes. and you and I know I, but like there was, it wasn't about. Sometimes with music, and I think sometimes we put a pressure on poetry that we don't put on yeah. other genres, where it's like we yes. have to understand what it's about or what it's telling us, and sometimes there are singer songwriters who that very much is the case, right? Like they're telling us a story. We understand Mm -hmm. every single word. We can follow the journey. And there's, and that is part of what draws us to that artist. For some musicians who I love, I couldn't tell you what a song was about, right? Like there's so it's, and this is a thing about having kids too. Like I'll listen to a song that I love. And then my son or my daughter will be like, what's this song about? And this is one I've listened to for like 20 years. And then I'm yeah. like, uh, like, great I, that's a great question. That's a good question. <laughs> and I like, and, yeah. and, and so I, I, I try to bring the same sensibility to poetry, right? Where sometimes it's not about me, like knowing what the poem was about or what the poet mm-hmm. was trying to tell me what their intention was when I finished the poem. Sometimes you read a poem and it is just about that one line that stays yeah. with you, that one image that stays yeah. with you. Sometimes it, you know, it's, it's like, it's like a painting. You go look at a painting and you're like, I don't really know what's going on in it, like here, but I know that like this corner of this right. abstract painting like makes me feel it's something. Doing something. Yeah. It's doing yeah. something. And yeah. you don't necessarily have the language for it. You don't necessarily have. So, Poetry is one of the things, I think it's a result of um, the way that we're taught about it. Like, we're yeah. taught about it as if, and, and Nate was on the podcast yeah, before, we did too, right? This, and, yeah. and he talked he about said this. The same but like, thing. Yeah, yeah it's, and I think that sometimes, I think it's true. Like, sometimes we are taught to treat poems like puzzles or math problems that right, need like to be solved. Right, like there's an answer. Yeah, and yeah. sometimes it really is just about how one line or one image right. or one moment in a poem makes you feel. And it doesn't have to be deeper than that, right. right? Like it doesn't have to be like, okay, well, I understood this one line, but I don't understand how it fits into everything else. Like some, maybe all the other lines you don't think you understand are just in service of, of making you line. feel that one line, you know, cause yeah. there are poems that I read, there are poets that I read and I remember it is a thing where like, I couldn't tell you what 
the name of the poem was. I couldn't yeah. tell, but I remember. And sometimes I don't even remember what the image was that made me feel a thing. But I remember there was a point in the reading of the book that I was moved or that I was struck or that I felt. And I think that that is fine because there's all sorts of different ways to yeah. to read and engage with poems. I, I fully agree with you. And I have been told this exact same thing. This is you're the fourth person who's done a poetry <laughs> book on the show. So we did uh, Wild Beauty by Ntozaka Shange. We did The Tradition by Jericho Brown. We did Doppelgangbanger by Courtney Lamar Charleston. And now we're doing a catalog of unabashed gratitude by Ross Gay. Mm-hmm. And when I first started this, like talking into a microphone about poetry, which again, makes me feel very insecure. I was like, I didn't get it. Ah, mm-hmm. and Gabrielle Seville, who was our guest for the first for the for the Wild Beauty, she was like, if you get one out of 10 poems in a poetry collection, she's like, that to me would be a poetry collection that I like. That's how I would classify that, whatever. And so I took that with me. And, you know, I've taken all these little pieces. And that's why I was really wanted to make sure that I said there were lines in this poetry collection where I was like, yes, right? Like mm-hmm. where I like felt things and like felt excited and letting go of this idea that I have to like get everything but it is hard to read a poem and to feel like I this line is sticking out but I don't know how did I get here (laughs) like so and I don't want to harp on this because I think there's a lot of really good stuff in this collection and like a lot of things that I want to talk about that I liked but there as far as like reading poetry and I know a lot of listeners will feel the same way is it is hard to be a person who thinks about and talks about the written word and then to feel like completely lost. Mm. Um, And like, to your point about music, I, my husband and I talk about this a lot. My kids love bad bunny. We Mm. love bad bunny in our house. Yeah. Mr. Stack speaks a little bit of Spanish because of work and things. I speak a very little bit of Spanish. So Mm. mostly we don't know what the fuck bad Bunny's talking about, (laughs) but we love bad bunny. And, And that is sort of like this poetry analogy, Mm. right? Like sometimes a poetry collection will just like be a banger for me, start to finish. And I'm like, I get it. I'm with you. Like Alive at the End of the World, Saeed Jones collection last year Mm. comes to mind. Above Ground comes to mind. I just finished reading um, Jose Oliveira's new collection, Promises of Gold comes to mind. Nate comes to mind. Like it's... It's like these poetry collections where I'm like, I know what they're talking about. I've experienced it. I can feel it. I'm just vibing out. And then there's Mm. poetry collections where I'm like, I love Thank You Next on Ariana Grande's album, Thank You Next. And that's it for me. Like, that's the one song, you know? And so, but it is hard to like navigate that as a smart, air quotes, literary person. You know, it's just, it's just a challenging, for me, this is the challenge. And I'm sure other people feel this way about sci-fi maybe, or romance or nonfiction. I know many people don't like nonfiction and they're like, Mm. it's boring, it's dry. And I say, yeah, some of it is, right? Which is like what you're saying to me about these poems, like, or not these poems, but about poetry. Some poetry collections are going to be giving you academic press, dry as fuck. Some of them are going to be giving you how the word is passed. Some of them are going to be giving you heavy, like, and not every poetry collection can be expected to be everything to every reader. So I try to like make space for that, but it is challenging because I can explain the difference between heavy and how the word is passed and, you know, some academic text or whatever, but I can't yet do that with poetry. Mm. So I think that's sort of what I'm getting at. And I think that that is okay, right? I also think it's, like, fine for us to extend 
grace to ourselves. Like, I don't know how to do that, Clint. <laughs> Can't you tell I'm all wound oh, up? Oh, <laughs> God. I see. I see. Oh, man. We have to go on a, a Peloton ride after I this. I know. To, uh, I already rode decompress. this morning. Oh, God. Double headed today. Um, I, look, I, different poets, and again, I, I keep going back to this sort of like meta genre thing, but like in the same way, different artists, different yeah. visual artists have different styles. Um, and it's, you know, so I've been thinking about this a lot because we are trying, we're buying art for our new home. And so, mm-hmm. you know, what me and I've been trying to figure out what my artistic sensibilities are. Like, I don't really have the language for Same. art. Like, I'm still learning. So, you know, <laughs> We've been I saw. have been in our house for seven years and there's no <laughs> art on the walls. <laughs> and so I'm, so I'm trying to figure this out. And I like, you know, I saw this um, really amazing uh, print by, um, I, can sh- I can show you, the reader won't. The listener won't see it, but hold on. Well, we could maybe link to it in the show notes. For those who are who are listening, I am grabbing the <laughs> the print to show Tracy. So this is a. Ooh, cool. um, let me see how. Are so, they soldiers? Wait. So these are. So this is by a guy named Jay Dura, um, DC based artist, and this is a what I an impressionist painting, uh, sort of modern impressionist. But it's a rendering of a famous photograph of black Civil War soldiers. Mm. Um, and it's like, if you literally, if you Google black Civil War soldiers, it'll be the first picture to come up. And I was just so struck by the colors and the broad brushstrokes and, um, and the way that he, the sort of three-dimensionality of it and how he captured this image that I know so well that's only, uh, that I've only ever seen in black and white mm-hmm. and and gave it a different sort of life. I'm looking and at so, the photograph now. Really yeah, cool. Yeah. <laughs> and so, I, like, I, I don't know, like, when I look at it, it makes me feel something. Mm-hmm. And, and I don't have all the language for it. I don't know if I understand it quote mm-hmm. unquote you know like when you go to museums you're like do i understand like it, it just it it evokes something within me yeah and that drew me to it and and i think that 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 is enough you know yeah. and and i it, my every poet has different styles too i come the way that i write my poems is something that i i take seriously and something that means a, a lot to me in all my forms of writing is this idea of accessibility. Mm-hmm. And it's interesting because sometimes accessibility can be, it's like a, a complicated word right. for me in some ways, because it is kind of the guiding ethos for so much of what I do. Like the reason right. I wrote how the word has passed the way that I did was because I wanted to reject the idea that scholarly and historical rigor was mutually exclusive from language and story, a storytelling and a narrative that was accessible to a sort of larger public. Right. Um, the reason Counting Descent is the type of book that it is, is because I was a kid who was reading poems in high school um, and in, even in college and sitting there and being like, I don't understand right. these poems. <laughs> right. I don't get it. What is this person saying? This doesn't make any sense to me. And who I was like, am I, is something wrong with me? Am I right. dumb? Like, am I dumb? Like, do I not understand? Like, is everybody else understanding this? Or are we all like performing a sort of understanding that isn't true? And we're just, you know, like, right. and so for me and my own sensibilities, I think I am drawn to writing poems that feel legible. 
in mm-hmm. some way. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's the same reason that I do the Crash Course Black American History series, right? right. Like make, I, because, it my, again, my guiding ethos is like, how do I make history legible for young people? And right. and part and so much of that shows up in my poems because I want it's all I'm always thinking about the same way I said in my our last podcast like the high school version of me right and I want the high school version of me to pick up a book of poems by the thirty something year old version of me and feel like they can read them and understand right. them. Different poets have different approaches. Different yes. poets have different sensibilities. Different poets and it is not to say one is right. Or one is wrong. Yeah. Um, there is there is a lot to be said. There is a, about poems that lean into complexity yeah. that are difficult, and I think that that is there's something really beautiful about that, really important about that. And you know, each writer, each artist has their own tradition they feel a part of, their own ethos, their own sort of guiding artistic principles, um, and and that looks different for for each person. You know, and. I do think that Ross's work is also legible in many ways. Yeah. But I but I think that the way that this book is written, especially because there are so many poems that are like 10 pages long. Yeah, there's only 24 poems. Right. The book it's is not, 100 pages. Your book is 100 pages and you have like 60. And yeah. And 24. I think it's not meant to be a book that you remember what a poem is. I mean, because like even yeah. the, the penultimate poem, the title poem, Catalog of Unabashed Gratitude, it's about like 17 different things. Yeah, it's, right? it's actually and its own poetry collection. That's what I, exactly. that was the note I took. I said the title yeah. poem is its own poetry collection. Um, yeah, and wait, okay, before we, before we dive in, we're going to take a quick break. We're going to come right back to this. Taking care of your health isn't always easy, but it should be at least simple. That's why for the last Three plus years, I have been drinking AG1 every day, no exceptions. It's just one scoop mixed in water once a day, every day, and it makes me feel nourished and strong enough to tackle whatever else might come my way. That's because each serving of AG1 delivers my daily dose of vitamins, minerals, pre and probiotics, and a lot more. It's a powerful, healthy habit that's also powerfully simple. The nutritional insurance that AG1 provides has been vital to keeping me productive and focused. It helps me cover my bases in just about the time it takes to fill a glass of water, scoop in one scoop of AG1, and then drink it. So I don't know, 75 seconds? With the perfect mix of vitamins, probiotics, and nutrients from Whole Foods, I'm not stuck trying to assemble it all by myself, which would have considerably worse results. AG1 saves me all the time and hassle, and it has made such a difference in my overall mood and especially my gut health, among many other things. But don't take my word for it. Go ahead and try AG1. Let me know what you think. Whether you notice you're needing more nutrient support than you're used to, or you just need an edge for a tough workout, AG1 can be the ticket. If there's one product I had to recommend to elevate your health, it's AG1, and that's why I've partnered with them for so long. If you want to take ownership of your health, start with AG1. Try AG1 and get a free one-year supply of vitamin D3, K2, and five free AG1 travel packs with your first purchase exclusively at drinkag1.com slash the stacks. That's drinkag1.com slash the stacks. Check it out. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. 
See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. Okay, we're back. I want to touch on what you were just saying about accessibility because, and this is a thing that I feel about in a lot of other art, and I think you balance this line really well. And the other collections I mentioned that really work for me balance this line really well about accessibility is that I feel like I can understand it, but I feel like you're not talking down to me or like you don't think that I'm an idiot. And Mm -hmm. I think oftentimes when things are accessible, you lose some complexity because Mm -hmm. the author is worried that their audience won't get it. And there's this like, I need to talk to the audience and my audience needs something that's accessible or whatever. And so I would loathe to suggest that someone like Ross Gay would ever want to be accessible to me I just think I'm not there yet, right? Mm. Like you're there and this collection works for you so well. And the it's not that Ross Gay needs to change what he does. I need to get better. Or like I need to embrace. But I don't even know. It. I don't even I don't even know if that's true though. I think it's like the way you also the way that you engage art is shaped so much by the moment and the time and the context right. in which you engage, right? So right. it is the way that we I even began talking about this. It's impossible for me. Like, it's fundamentally impossible for me to disentangle the experience of first encountering this book Mm. from the larger sociopolitical context in which I encountered it. Mm -hmm. Does that mean when I picked this book up, I understood every single thing Ross was trying to say? No. But I knew there were images. I knew there were ideas. Mm -hmm. I knew there were lines and language that made me feel something that I that I didn't realize I needed so desperately Yes. in that moment. And yes. so it's, I mean, it's almost, it's the same. And again, here we keep going with different genres, <laughs> but like it's, have you ever, like, I think many of us have had this experience where like, maybe you're out at a bar or you're out at the club. Mm-hmm. I don't, you know, I don't go to the club anymore. Uh, you know, but like when I was young and hip, um, you're out at the club and you hear this song and you're like, this song is amazing. Like, yeah. what is this? And then you like, you put, you know, you Shazam it and you like, look it up later. You're like, get the song. And then you listen to it. Like when you're washing the dishes in your house and you're like, this doesn't feel the same. It's not slap. This, this is not, sla- <laughs> it does not, this felt so different, yeah. you know, in the, cl- and, and it's because the way you consume art is inevitably tied to the context in which you consume it, right? Yeah. And so, like, what a fe- the feeling you had listening to that song while yeah. with your friends, while dancing, while, like, you know, li- living young, wild, and free is different than the feeling you have folding your clothes right. or, like, washing, right. you know? And right. and that's... And so, for this book, it's, it's the same... Who knows how I would experience this book if I were reading it for the first time now rather right. than seven years ago. That's true. And I think about that all the time with certain books that I read. Yeah. Like I read it at a time that either made it so that the book did or didn't speak to me in a certain way. And if I revisit it, then I might engage with it in a way that changes my 
understanding of it. So, yeah. so I, mean, I, that's I, don't what th- ha- yeah. I don't think, I just want to say that I don't think it's the case that something is wrong with you or that you well, need right. to change, but like. Not that I, I need I, to change, but like, I would hate that. I would hate that a poet would change their poems because of like the thought of an audience, because I feel mm-hmm. like there is the audience. It just might not be me, right? Or like, but that's for every every art again. That's all of it, and I think yeah. part of it too is like it's still sometimes because people don't read a lot of poetry. They the poem the po- collections that they do read there's or the poems they read. There's like a lot of pressure on those people. Put a lot of pressure on themselves yes. and on the collection to like be the thing that helps them. And like, if they don't get it, like they don't get, you're like, this is just reifying the idea that I don't understand poetry. Uh And it's, imagine, I think if you read, and this is not to like burden you with this task, but like, if you read as many books of poetry as you do books of nonfiction, you would would find, you would find so many more poems. Because part of it is just figuring out what you like. Yeah. Part of it is just figuring out what poems and what poets and what sort of vibes that you align with and then yeah. finding the poems and poets that uh that align with that and when you have a smaller sample size it can be tougher to find um the people because you just haven't read as as broadly but you know totally. it's i i agree with you i don't think any poet should change their work in service of the audience necessarily right. um unless that's like feels. the intention of the piece like yeah, unless I mean, the intention I, is the audience and then, you know. Yeah, I think, you know, I, I write the poems that feel most natural to me. Right. And for and, and I have to accept that for some people, you know, I, and I thought about this a lot with this book. And I thought about this a lot in the editing process and like. With above ground, do you mean? With above ground. Um, there are some people who are going to read certain poems in there and be like, this is like overly earnest or like mm-hmm. this is too sweet for me or this mm-hmm. is too sentimental or this is like why do you have to ruin it by like ending on this kind of line that tried to neatly wrap it all up i wrote the poems that felt most natural for me Mm -hmm. for each for each specific poem yeah and i think that part of what that means is that i have to accept that different people some people might like that and some people might not yeah and that's just what kind of comes with the territory um and if you and I hope that those people who were like these poems are too earnest or these poems are too, uh, you know, sentimental, well, that you're entitled to have that opinion. And I hope right. you go find poems that that don't feel that way for you, right? Like, yeah. it's, and that's okay, you know, and yeah. it has to be okay. Okay, I want to talk about a few of the poems in the actual collection. First of all, one of the po- one of the moments that I felt like. Ross Gay and I had come together into one brain and one heart was in the poem Armpit, where he talks about <laughs> being in his parents' bed and just observing, but not really hearing what they were talking about as like a kid. I don't mm. know. That moment, I just I loved it so much. I was like, this is my childhood. And I want to talk also about this idea of gratitude, mm-hmm. because as we mentioned, at the beginning, there's a lot of this poetry collection is about, I, I, I don't know Roske, but I assume he's big into gardening. He seems like Loves a gar- garden. gardening girly, Loves okay? Garden. Something oh, that I am not into at all, which I think was part of my struggle was like sometimes he'd be comparing things to like a plant and I'd have to be like, what is this plant? Yeah, yeah, <laughs> like, yeah. what does that mean? Um, but this idea of grief and death is like very palpable in this collection. And as you were talking about the time in which it came out, of course, that makes 
that make more sense. Plus, there is the personal grief. He's lost a father. He has a friend who is is murdered um, in one of the poems. Mm -hmm. And again, it reminds me a lot of Hanif because when Mm -hmm. Hanif was on the show, he talked about... um, you know, he, he lost his mother when he was young and he talked about how as he's gotten older, he's been able to kind of reclaim that some of that grief as gratitude of like how lucky I was to to be alive when my mother was alive for this amount of time. Mm. And it again reminds me of above ground because you've got this grief and this gratitude. And I think what I'm trying to say is my favorite part of this collection were all the times that grief popped up because Mm. that was like what made it feel really alive. Like if it had been just like, I love a chrysanthemum. I love a plum. Look at this squirrel. I would have been like, okay, no, thank yeah. you. But then it would be like, I love the squirrel. And like, I think it's in, I think it's on page 89. I don't think it is. I wrote it down where he's talking about his um, friend who's murdered. And he says, and thank you, the bag, and thank you, the baggie of dreadlocks I found in a drawer while washing and folding the clothes of our murdered friend. Like, it just comes out of nowhere, right? Mm-hmm. Like, he's, it's in this, it's in the title poem. And he says, you know, thank you to the woman in, woman barefoot in a gaudy dress thank you to the man all night long hosing a mist on his early bloomed peach tree and it's all in the same poem and all of a sudden it's like thank you to this and my friend who was murdered and like it's like these little moments of like Mm. it's there's darkness here too that Mm. was what really like excited me about this collection because I was worried it was just going to be a collection of poems of like I'm grateful for the trees I'm Mm -hmm. you know and it's like I don't know. That's to me. That is like where the poem, the collection shined brightest. Yeah, and it's it's so. I'm glad you said that because it's. I don't want to, um, want people to leave, and they won't because we're not talking about it. But like, leave with like a reductive sense of what the book is about. That it's just like la la la, yeah. like ode to this, ode to that, and that. To be clear, that would be a perfectly fine book to write. Yeah, but part of what I think is so for me special about this book is the way that those moments sit almost within mm-hmm. the sort of larger sense of gratitude. And, and you, you point this out, but like it kind of, they show up because so many of these streams, these poems are like long streams of consciousness. They, they simply show up in the stream of consciousness as they would in our own stream of consciousness, right? Mm-hmm. Like sometimes you are to bring it back to what someone we were talking about at the park, like, you're pushing your kid on the swing and you're like, la, 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 it's a lovely day. This is amazing. La, la, la. And then you get a phone call and your brother and your mom is telling you that like your aunt just died. Or, and right. then, but like, and then your son is like, you know, they're not on the phone. So like, can I have some, right. some Ritz crackers? Like, and push then, me oh, mommy, like, yeah, push me high. <laughs> right. And like, and in your brain and the way you are experiencing it all, it's like, like if you were to write about that, you're like talking about what it is to watch your kid, like, swing back and forth and their legs mm-hmm. dangling over the swing. Mm-hmm. And then you pick up the phone and this person who you know in your entire life has passed away and you have to figure out how to get a plane ticket that mm-hmm. tomorrow, the next night to go to the funeral. But at the same time, your kid is saying, look at me, look at me as they get on the wheelbarrow. And so your mind is moving to all these different places. And I think it's a similar thing that's happening in Ross's book. Like there's a place where he says, this is on early in the collection on page four, um, in the to the fig tree on ninth and Christian poem um, at the bottom, where he says, "I couldn't understand, and besides, I was a little tipsy on the dance of the velvety heart rolling in my mouth, 
pulling me down and down into the oldest countries of my body, where I ate my first fig from the hand of a man who escaped his country by swimming through the night. Right. And so it's it is this moment of, you know, he's describing the 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 fruit as as a heart, a velvety heart rolling around in his mouth. And and he's talking about this man who hands it to him. And we're like enraptured in, in this moment of utter like he's just experiencing utter delight. And it's like, oh, this came from the hand of a man who came who escaped his country by swimming through the night. Right. And so it's it's even the the juxtaposition of those moments, right? right? Where like you are handed something that gives you so much joy from a person whose hands have experienced so much pain. Right. Um, right. And that's, again, like that's, that's life. And yeah. you think about how many times that happens where like, we don't know that story, right? right? Or how many times something that we have benefited from has come from the hands or the work mm-hmm. of people who's, whose stories carry traumas or, or violence that we will never, that we will never know. Sometimes we won't know it and sometimes we will know it. But does, and does that, and does the knowing it change how we experience the joy or delight of the thing? I, I don't know. Maybe it does, right. maybe it doesn't. But I just, I like that those sorts of moments exist because it, for me, it, it takes me, it is a sort of reminder for me of the duality of of all of so many of our experiences. Yeah, I mean, just hearing you say that and t- mentioning like, you know, you're at the park and your kid asks for Ritz cracker and whatever and like on top of all the things you said, also then all of a sudden Ritz crackers become associated with your with your aunt's passing or something, right? Like it's like that these things not only do they happen all at the same time, but then they get pushed into your brain at the same time. Like I can't think about I said this last time, I can't think about um, the verdict in the George in in the murder trial, you know, for George Floyd, without thinking about the exact park that I was in and the helicopters mm-hmm. overhead, right? And like those things shouldn't necessarily be connected, but to me, that verdict coming out is the helicopters. And then I had to leave the park, and so I ended up at Sprouts, and I just think about Sprouts, and like it's like mm-hmm. these things, and and I do think that the collection does a really good job of that, and that is so clear in the collection that it's like this Mm. moving through the stream of consciousness and this like meandering thought, but it's also challenging if you don't know the thought that started it all. Um, Mm. But, but I, I, I do like the challenge of this collection. Like I like Mm -hmm. the words and I've talked about this before too. I like to read poetry out loud at least a little bit Mm. um, because I usually can find something out loud that I can't find off the page. Um, oftentimes just with like how the vowels and the consonants sound, you know, we, we did doppelgangbanger. And one of the things that I loved about that collection when I was reading it out loud was how many like plosive and, and like really like oral um, consonants there are in that collection. Mm-hmm. Like just the word choice was so like, and I just like loved mm-hmm. it, right? Mm-hmm. And this brings me to another thing that we talk about a lot that I want to ask you about because you're a poet, you have a poem about it, so we got to talk about it. I want to talk about punctuation, line endings, and how a poem appears on the page. Because, okay. and, and I'll give you my quick backstory. People who listen to these poetry episodes know I have a background in acting. I studied Shakespeare for a while, and I have very strong opinions about meter and Mm. punctuation um and so when i see a period 
I respect a period. When I see a comma, I respect a comma. When I see a line ending, that to me means an end of something. It doesn't have to be an end of a sentence. It doesn't have to be an end of a thought. It doesn't have to be a big pause, but there is some shift for me. That's the cue that I'm getting from the writer. Now, I've talked to many poets. They don't all agree with me. They, some people say, some people say they agree and then I hear them read their poems and they don't actually agree <laughs> agree with me. And then some people mm-hmm. are like, no, you're wrong. So I would love to hear from you your thoughts about punctuation, line endings. And then when I say how poems appear on the page, like you have the poem about the coastline uh, in Louisiana that is like on a diagonal and it gets like thinner and thinner and thinner. Um, and so like I read that poem in a different way or like your hiccup mm-hmm. poem. It's like these little paragraphs back and forth. So like that's like a hiccup to me. Mm-hmm. So like I was reading them in different voices kind of like. I like the stuff. shoulder movement. <laughs> of so, like, I'm, I'm like acting it <laughs> out. Like I, once an actor, always an actor. Um, so I'd love to hear your thoughts because this poetry collection does not have a lot of punctuation, which made me was struggling for me, was hard for me. But also some of the poems, like the first poem has very few lines in the poem. And then later on, some of the lines are really, really long. So just wondering what you think about those kind of cues as a poet to your audience. Yeah, I think that, you know, it's interesting to think about these questions within the context of a specific poem. And then interesting to think about them in the context of a larger collection in which different poems are fitting together. Um, So in the context of Ross's book, part of what, you know, we've talked about this, part of what I think the, the lack of punctuation is doing is communicating a sort of stream of consciousness, a kind of rolling Mm -hmm. set of ideas and thoughts that are meant to reflect the like i like in some ways like i read this book and i feel like i am stepping into the consciousness mm-hmm. of roske to be you know i should say yeah. you know we are taught that the speaker is not always the author, the author and there right. you yeah. and so maybe it's ross maybe it's not i think it's ross if it's wrong sorry ross but <laughs> um but it feels like when i'm reading i'm stepping into the consciousness of roske and experiencing the myriad ways that he makes sense of of a moment, of an idea, of a set of ideas altogether. And some of these poems are only have like two, you know, so I'm looking, I just flipped to a random uh, page, page 45, to the mistake. Each line has two or three max four words per line. And so the the impact, the effect that I experience when reading lines that are very short is is a speed is speed right mm-hmm. like i'm sort of moving quickly through my eyes are moving quickly down the page i'm experiencing the sensation of of quickness mm-hmm. uh in some way and and so to me that the what the poem whether this is the intention of the writer or not what it is doing is saying i want to be read quickly part of mm-hmm. and and that may be tied to the content of the poem um i know oftentimes for me when i do make a similar stylistic choice i'm my intent is that the reader experience it as a sort of quickening mm-hmm. um that the this because it's interesting and i had to think about this a lot because i came from uh, as we talked about in the last episode i come from a performance poetry background right. like i come from a background in which like i wasn't thinking at all about what the 
poem look like on the page? Because when I was first writing poems, they were just big blobs of text. Mm-hmm. They just and I would get on stage and I controlled how the listener, how the audience yes. experienced what I was saying. So I made a decision about where to speed up, where to slow down, where to in, make my volume louder, where to make it softer, mm-hmm. where to do certain things with my body that like enhanced or complemented the the meaning of the words I was saying, um, what my breath control was like. Those were in the form, right? If, thinking, if we're going to think of like spoken word poetry, performance poetry as its own form yeah. uh, within the sort of larger genre of poetry, which I think we should, those act as sort of auditory punctuation, um, right. auditory line breaks. And so when you, when I, in Counting Descent, that was the first time that I, at a collection's length, had to think about poems that I had spent a lot of time reading out loud. How does what I was doing with my breath or my voice translate to the uh, structural decisions that I make on the page. And, and so, you know, if I want the reader to experience things more slowly, I'll make the lines very long. If I want them to experience things very quickly, I make the lines very short. Um, Sometimes I want the form, the content of the poem to be reflected in the structure and the form of the poem. So to your point, like cartography um, is meant to reflect the eroding away of the Louisiana coastline. I think about the poem um, about the, the little boy who's the first person killed at the, um, the electric chair chair and how that poem is meant to look like a chair. Right. And so, um, (laughs) so, so right. Oh, that's interesting. That's in, so it's I didn't get that, that, that but even... I but there's such a clear rhythm to that collection to that yeah. poem that it's like it's like two syllable two syllable two syllable two syllable and yes. then it's like that 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 yep. that 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 so like I got it but I never the chair didn't occur to me and that's that's that is so fascinating to me right the way that like what people get do they see the yeah. chair do they not see the chair some people you know I in my first collection there was a poem about uh, this idea of like holding your hands up as you go down the slide. Mm-hmm. Um, that was a t- an attempt at being in conversation with the idea of like Mike Brown, hands up, don't shoot kind mm-hmm. of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and that poem is meant to look, you know, not directly, but somewhat like a, like a slide. And so those choices are choices you can make. You don't have to make those choices for every right. type of poem. Um, but I think for those of us who, there's like a, know, like a generation of us, so to speak, or a sort of group of us who came from, the spoken word, slam poetry, performance poetry space, who are now in our, you know, when and we all knew each other when we were teenagers in our right. early 20s. We were at the same open mics, same poetry slams, the same. Uh, and now so many of us are, have like moved into different genres. Mm-hmm. Um, I think, you know, I'm thinking about Eve Ewing, I'm thinking about Nate Marshall, I'm thinking about Safia Hilo, Elizabeth Acevedo, Fatima Ashgar, Denise Smith. Hadifa Durakib, like so many folks, you know, I've known these folks for half my life. Right. And part of what everybody, I think, brings to their work and keeps from our time on stages. Um, and, you know, we're still on stages in different ways. But like, you know, now people are writing young adult novels and writing for TV and writing Marvel right. comics and writing essays and writing. And it's amazing to see the the way that we took this space that in so many ways trained us as writers. Mm-hmm. Like this, this was our training ground. This is where we learned the music 
of language. Right. And I think that that shows up in so much of our work um, in various ways. But part of what it has been for so many of us is thinking about how the auditory and oral experience translates into different mediums and different, you know, and we make dif- different decisions. That's not to say we all, there's like a homogenous set of decisions that are right. made around it. But, um, but you are thinking about how something out loud might translate like because you are I guess what I'm asking is you are thinking about what instructions or hints you might potentially leave for a reader about how you think about the poems not necessarily performance but like how they're you're trying to tell us something with the with the shape or the line length and endings and things Yes, like you want and, us to respect that. And I, I, what I was what I came to with the Stacks Pack on our book club last time was like, I feel like the author is just saying, make a choice, like yeah. choose whatever these short lines mean to you, like make a choice, do the poem that way and like see what comes up. But like that there is a choice behind a poem like mistake or mm-hmm. a poem like catalog of unabashed gratitude like they're very differently written and so they Mm -hmm. should be treated differently to the reader's reading yes and what the author's (laughs) what the author's intent was it's kind of irrelevant like it doesn't it doesn't matter like it doesn't like when like when i put above ground out into the world i can have made all sorts of specific, granular, line level, word level decisions about what, you know, what yes. language am I using? What is this? What is that? What is. And somebody can come to that poem and read it in a completely different way mm-hmm. than I intended it. Mm-hmm. But that's kind of like that's that's the name of the game. Right. Like that's that is that is literally what art does when you put it out into the world. It's not doesn't matter what you thought you were doing like yeah. it doesn't matter like i mean you can talk about it and that's interesting but i have i have high school kids who like slide my dms every day and who are like i was assigned counting descent for school and i have a question about this poem what did you mean with this mm. so, like is the cicada a metaphor for this what is the this what is the right. that what is the tr- the cathedral is that are you saying you know and they're like wikipediaing me and like all right he was raised <laughs> he was catholic uh, but he has a kid who's Four and a kid who's five, four plus five is nine. Yeah. Not there were nine <laughs> saints in the, you know, in right. the, right. they'd like do all kind of, you know, because that's how we're taught to that's think how we're about taught. how we have to analyze poems. And it's like too much. How how the poem make you feel? Right? right. How the line make you feel? Like I'm I'm much more interested in what the line or the poem or the collection did for you than whatever I intended it to be. Right. Um but there and, is yeah. some, but I guess. Regardless of how I receive it or what decisions I make with it, you are signaling to us in some way something. If we catch it or not is on us. But there is some like, you know, choices that are made by you that you're hoping to pass on to us. Not necessarily that we would make the same choice, but that that you've made a choice. Yes. Yes. That I have made a choice. And what and even but even what those choices meant to me might be different, be different. than what those choices meant cuz yeah. i can i can sit here and say you know when i make short lines i mean for the pace to be quickened that's how i experience it yeah. as a reader i read it totally opposite from you you could oh that's so interesting i right? read short like, lines as like like thinking on the thought so it's like i went to the store 
to get a glass of milk. And like, it's like that I'm discovering the language for it. Whereas like a longer line, I read a little bit quicker because it's like, I'm telling you something. See? Yeah. That's amazing. I but, think that's amazing. Like, right. That's and the, so I don't think that the so author's cool. intent is important, but I do think that the author's, I to me, again, as an actor, because that's like, that's what you have. You have the script. I don't have Tennessee Williams telling me what he wants Laura to do, but I have... Mm-hmm. I have the way that he's written this character or like obviously for Shakespeare, like I have the iambic pentameter and I know what that means. So in a, in a line like now is the winter of our discontent, it doesn't follow mm-hmm. the iambic. That first, that first now is a bigger moment for us because then it goes into the iambic or, or a line like to be or not to be. That is the question that also is not iambic. We have a, we have an extra syllable or whatever at the end. And so those are like hints from the author, which is how I approach poetry. I'm like, oh, they're telling me something and I have to figure out what that is for me. It doesn't mean that I get, it doesn't mean that I get your actual instructions, mm-hmm. but it means like there's something here for me to unpack because otherwise it would be written in a different way, you know? Yeah, I think that's right. At least that's how I do it. I don't know. That's that's the only way I can do it because then it le- it keeps me engaged in a poem. Sometimes like I'll lose my thought, but if I'm like trying to figure it out, I feel like I stay um, more engaged. Yeah. I want to ask you: Did you have a favorite poem in the collection? In Ross's collection? Yeah. The th- it's hard to pick a single poem that is my favorite, in part because I don't. I mean, Ross might tell you differently, but like I I don't read. I almost read this book as like one long poem. Hmm. Like it, it feels less of a set of individual poems than like one large stream of consciousness. I just read it as like a hundred pages of Ross's stream of consciousness. Hmm. Um, and one of the things that I, one of the poems that I'm looking at right now is a poem called feet. Um, and there's a lot that I love here. Um, because it like it captures Ross's humor. Like he has a line on on this on page twenty on the first one where he says, um, <laughs> "I mean, let me. I'm just actually read the the first several lines. Feet, friends, mine are ugly feet. The body's common wreckage stuffed into boots. The second toe on the left foot's crooked enough that when a child asks, "What's that?" of it, I can without flinch or fear of doubt lie that a cow stepped on it." which maybe makes them fear cows for which I repent in love as I am with those philosophical beasts who would never smash my feet nor sneer at them the way my mother does. It's so, that's very funny to me. Like the whole thing, he's just like, I have ugly ass feet. And sometimes a kid will look at my feet and be like, damn, like what's wrong with your feet? And then he'll say a cow stepped on them. Mm -hmm. And it's, I'm, it's funny because I think of my four year old Mm -hmm. who like, my five-year-old, he might be like, mm, this is not true. My four-year-old will be like, oh, my God, a cow stepped on. Like, she would absolutely believe right, you when you right, say a cow stepped on right. your foot. And then he's like, I don't want to traumatize this child by talking about how a cow stepped yeah. on my foot. I don't want to ruin cows for this little girl. And so I love the humor that it enters with. Then um, he goes like, I have never indulged in the pleasure of flip-flops, <laughs> shy or ashamed, digging my toes like 10 tiny ostriches into the sand. Mm-hmm. Like, again, really funny. And then the other thing I like about this poem is on page 22. And he does this many times throughout the book where he he almost does like a meta. He either steps out of the po- poem yes. 
and like addresses the reader. Yes. Or he like steps out of the poem to talk about things that poets do yes. in poems. This is the and best I, part of this poem. Yes. This I'm trying. I, I like it. I like it so much. But what yes. do I know? He says, what I do know is that I love the moment when the poet says, I'm trying to do this or I'm trying to do that. Sometimes it's a horseshit trick, but sometimes it's a way by which the poet says, I wish I could tell you truly of little of the little factory in my head, the smokestacks chuffing, the dandelions and purslane and willows of sweet clover prying through the blacktop. I wish I could tell you how inside the steady mumble and clank of machines. And so I just like. He and he does this like in some of his poems, he'll have this like dear reader or like like as a reminder that he that there's no pretense. He's like, I know people are reading this. And he's also like almost it's, it's a sort of gentle self-deprecation mm-hmm. um, that I really appreciate. Like I like it when I per- I personally like it also when poets don't take themselves too seriously. Um, and it's just a sort of like. Yeah, it was just a cool moment. So I like, I really like the poem Feet um, for a lot of reasons. Okay, last thing, because I know you have to go. What do you think of the title and the cover? And then we're done. Beautiful cover. I yes. love the colors. Love. It is, and this, you know, to wrap up, our, I feel like we've had so many meta, <laughs> like the meta commentaries. But like, I look, so I look at this cover. I don't know what this cover, I don't know what is a picture of. I don't no. know what it's meant. Is it a field? Is it a yes. flowers? flowers? Is it a garden? Is it sun. a is that the sun? Yeah. Is that the sky? Is it water? Is yeah. it is it the sky point? But but I know how it makes me feel. So good. And I it just I like looking at it. I love the dripping paint. I love yeah. it just and and I think that that's not to get like overly poety meta, but like that's what this book is, yes. right? It's like and the dripping paint is like the dripping. way that the, the it like bleeds in everything bleeds into everything else, totally. right? That is the stream of consciousness. That is, and it's you don't have to say that this is a picture of a meadow. You don't have to say this is a painting of the sunset. You don't have to know if that's the water or the sky. All you have to know is what it makes you feel. Yeah. Totally. I agree. The only thing I don't like about my cover is all these stupid stickers take away from the painting. But like oh God. congratulations. Yeah, yeah, sorry, it's so good. Um and I love the cat. I love that the title was in one of the poems. I always mm-hmm. love that. Mm-hmm. Um, okay. This was so much fun. This was Clint, great. You're welcome anytime. Um, thank you so much for being here. Everybody, you can go get Above Ground wherever you get your books. Thank you, Clint. It was so fun. And everyone else, we will see you in the stacks. All right, y'all, that does it for us today. Thank you so much for listening. And thank you again to Clint Smith for being our guest and to Lena Little for helping to make this conversation possible. And now the announcement for our May book club pick. The book that we'll be reading is called This Boy We Made, A Memoir of Motherhood, Genetics, and Facing the Unknown by Taylor Harris. It came out in 2022, and I am so excited to read it with our guest. But you'll have to listen next week on May 3rd to find out who our guest will be. We will be discussing This Boy We Made on Wednesday, May 31st on the podcast. If you love the show and you want inside access to it, head to patreon.com slash the stacks to join the stacks pack. Make sure you're subscribed to the stacks wherever you listen to your podcasts. And if you're listening through Apple podcasts, be sure to leave us a rating and a review. For more from the stacks, follow us on social media at the stacks pod on Instagram and at the stacks pod underscore on Twitter and check out our website, the stacks 
This episode of The Stacks was edited by Christian Duenas with production assistance from Lauren Tyree. Our graphic designer is Robin McCrite, and our theme music is from Tagirajis. The Stacks is created and produced by me, Tracy Thomas.